psychological safety means that people feel safe to speak up, to question authority, to ask questions, and to ask for what they need. And when people are in an environment that's psychologically safe, they will do all those things and the outcomes are much better. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. My next guest is an author, sociologist, and famed professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. But as he says, when it comes to business, he's not all about the numbers. He's very focused on the relationships and the values that help people become successful outside of just the bottom line. Dr. Wayne Baker is a big believer in asking questions, and he believes asking is the process that gets everything rolling. If there's no ask, there's no productivity. He also has a very interesting take on reciprocity. He views it in a quote-unquote pay-it-forward mindset, and in just a few minutes, you'll hear him talk more about that. But on that note, Dr. Baker helped me to put together an incredible podcast episode, and I will now pay that forward by helping you through bringing you the wisdom that he shares. So, without further ado, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Wayne Baker. So, Dr. Wayne Baker, pleasure. This is comes full circle. As you reminded me, I guess it was a couple of years ago, I reached out to your wife, mm-hmm. had a good conversation with her, and she's just like, no, no, you know, this, is, this wouldn't be for me. You need to talk to Larry. Right. Larry, when he was in town, popped over, had a really good conversation with him. Sharp guy, interesting mm-hmm. guy, highly successful guy. And he's on a mission taking some of your work to a whole other level. Mm-hmm. Do you mind sharing with us what your work is, what you're doing, and some of the stuff that you guys have been doing at Give It, with Give It Toss and Give and Take? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, so Larry's a great guy. It was a great find for us. So uh, Cheryl and I have had this uh, dream for quite a while of creating a technology that would enable people to give and get help from one another, but to do it on a really grand scale, do it with very large numbers of people, and we don't have to be in the same place at the same time, because we have a lot of exercises that do that, and they're highly effective, but doing it with the technology, it opens up a whole new horizon. So we decided we wanted to do that, but we said we need to find a professional CEO who's got a track record, who's worked with academics before, and has built a real successful business from it, so we did well. Networking, I guess. <laughs> How'd you find him? I mean, because yeah. I mean, you found someone that hit every single one of those points. Yeah. So my wife, Cheryl, was has been involved with the local incubator in town, which is Spark. And that's in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten to know a number of people there over the years. She went through their boot camp maybe 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so we just know a lot of people. And so we kind of put the word out. And one of our early investors was Kurt Rieger, who is a, another entrepreneur in the Ann Arbor area. He knew Larry and kind of one thing led to another in a whole series of conversations. And we really got to the point where we thought, Larry's the guy. And uh, he said, I've got a team I can bring with me. There are different places, but I think I can get them to come back. And it was absolutely right. He was able to do that. And he hooked us up with the investors. So it's RPM uh, Ventures out of Ann Arbor. 
uh, another Michigan connection. Uh-huh. So yeah. go blue. <laughs> Apologies to all you state fans out there. Yeah, so connect with this with Larry. Larry pulled together the team, pulled together I love the team. venture capital, yeah. the whole thing, and uh, we're off to the races. It's just really great. It's like, for Shell and me, it's like our, our dream come true. That's great. So for those who aren't familiar with who you are and your background, do you mind just kind of giving a quick overview? Sure. So uh, I'm a, a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, uh, where I've been for about 25 years. Before that, I was at the University of Chicago in the business school there. It's now called the Booth School. I was there before it was a Booth School. And um, my PhD is in sociology with a specialty in social networks and social capital. And so uh, the very, very early work I did was mapping trading on the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange, how traders traded with one another, uh, mapping that out using network techniques. Now, this was a long time ago, first time that had ever been attempted. And uh, it was really quite illuminating. You know, it was very interesting to take this idea that a market is really a network mm-hmm. of people connected with one another in some way. And uh, those are the early days of network analysis. And we were kind of all like a fringe group of people who were who were doing Five this. Years. Yeah. And, but now it's become kind of mainstream. And so being in a business school, I've always wanted to go beyond just the academics, just the how do you do the analysis? And I'll never forget, it was back in the year 2000, maybe 1999. Cheryl and I were talking. So she's an organizational development consultant, not an academic. Uh, she brings tools to the marketplace, you know, based on these ideas of social capital. And she said, well, you know, you teach your students how to analyze networks. What do you tell them to do? And I said, well, you know, I've got a couple of stories and I got some anecdotes and I'm kind of hoping I'm going to run out of time, you know, because I don't have a whole lot. Yeah. And um, so that started a conversation. I said, well, if you think of social capital as being two things, it's networks plus generalized reciprocity, which is a great academic phrase. But it basically means that reciprocity is more than you help me and I help you, which is great. Of course, we would do that. But another form of it is that you help me and I'm so grateful for the help that I received that I pay it forward and they help a third person. And that person helps another person kind of paying it forward. That makes this spreads reciprocity into kind of more of an indirect form that spreads throughout a network. And that's where you tap onto all the resources that are out there. And I said, so it's networks plus generalized reciprocity. And so she said, well, tell me, give me an example. So I gave an example of this exchange system that exists in this circle of islands in the South Pacific, something I had learned in an economic anthropology class, which was a study, it was a study of economic systems that are not market systems, not Western systems. And so from this really very exotic example, she came back with a couple of ideas and we went back and forth. And in short order, we had the reciprocity ring. And the reciprocity ring is now, it's a structured or a facilitated process by which people get to ask for something, but they spend most of their time helping other people. And it creates this form of generalized reciprocity. So we find is that I can help from these three people, but I didn't help them. I helped some other people in it. So it creates that more powerful indirect form. And amazing things have happened. So the it's now used in almost all the top business schools. Uh, well over 100,000 people have done it. It became the basis of Givitas, which is a technological version of it. Mm-hmm. And if I tell you a story about what, for me, which is my the most touching story in all of this, is that the reciprocity ring is used at INSEAD, um, the business school in France. Oh, yeah, great school. That's a wonderful school. And they use it in a big way. So all of their incoming MBA students will, they run through this activity. 
So it kind of sets them off on the right foot to start the topic we've been talking about, networking. It gets them to think about it in the right way, that it's really about generosity, but also asking when you need something. They have so many of these rings running at the same time that they'll have the staff and faculty be trained. So we'll train them. How do you run a successful reciprocity ring experience? Can you explain that? Because I think a lot of people aren't going to understand how, how a reciprocity ring works. Yeah, so it's a... So there are props. There's a like a big poster. Um, you can imagine with a circle around it with a bunch of dots on it, 24 dots, four different color quadrants. And But we lead people through this process of... So first part is that you have to... I kind of give an introduction, get people motivated, but then say, okay, well, you've got to make a request. And so let's think about what your goals are, what you're trying to accomplish. Okay, and then, all right, if you're trying to accomplish that goal, what's a request that's going to help you get a resource to move in the direction of, of that goal? Moving that destination is okay. Then we'll have we have these little forms that are kind of giant post its, and you write down your name and a few words on it. Whatever you ask for, it's got to meet smart criteria, and it's not smart in the usual way. So S is for specific, that is the way we usually think about, but M is for meaningful. M often means measurable, which is great, but it's meaningful. Why are you making the request? Why is it so important? The A is for Action, you know, you're asking for something to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so smart, what was the M again? Ma- uh, meaningful. meaningful, yeah. Okay. Specific, meaningful, action-oriented. Mm-hmm. Ask for something that's real, realistic, but mm-hmm. it, could be a, it could be a stretch. And ask. And then by when? The T is time. You know, have to have date. Yeah. Have yeah. to have the date on smart. it. And so, and so everyone, you announce this request to the group, goes up on the poster. They're thinking about how they could help. They're filling out forms, how they could help. And then later on in the process, we connect all the help to the request. Mm. So I did, um, actually just this week, I did two of them uh, with executives, one in our positive leadership program, which is an open enrollment program. People come from all over to take it. Mm-hmm. And then another that we work with a, a major automaker and they have a cohorts of executives that come through the program and I'll run the ring with them. That's the process. They we're training people at INSEAD to do this. And as part of the training, we say, okay, well, make a meaningful request and make a personal request. I'm happy related to work. And so there was a, uh, a staff person there, not a faculty member. Her name is Felicia. She made a request for her little niece, Christina, who lives in Romania. And it turns out that she had a condition called craniosynostosis. Like you have children, right? Mm-hmm. I do, you know, yeah. you know, the soft spot of a baby's head. Yeah. It has to do with the design of the skull. There's different bones and they're joined by these sutures and it allows the skull to grow. Hers fused too early, which oh. which is means a horrible fate. Oh my gosh, she's gonna die. She's gonna expl- Her brain's gonna go into her. Yeah, it can lead. If it's not death, it's blindness or oh. seizures, learning difficulties, a misshapen head, and finding a surgeon in Romania was kind of kind of a long shot. But Felicia, in the reciprocity ring, being trained, said made a request on behalf of her little niece, Christina, in Romania. Somebody else who was being trained that day adjunct faculty, so not his main job, but teaches occasionally in INSEAD, was a pediatrician. And he said, I'm sure I could find you a surgeon at our pediatric hospital in Paris who can do this. He did. Christine and her family flew from Romania to Paris. She had the surgery. It was a complete success. And this was only like two years ago. She was just back recently for a uh, checkup and everything's completely normal. The family has stayed in touch with us. And for Cheryl and me, and Larry, it's like, it makes it all worthwhile, yeah. you know, to be able to do that. And in fact, I have a picture of this beautiful little girl. I keep it on my desk at home because it's just as a reminder 
of how powerful the network could be if you use it in the right way. 100%. So are you familiar with the study that Facebook did back in 2011 and then 14? I forgot the name of it, but they figured I'm going to bastardize all the, the the quotes and the time frame, but you'll understand the genesis of it. So in 2011, they said, all right, well, how connected are we? And yeah. amongst the network, they realized that everybody that's just on Facebook, so even just Facebook, doesn't matter who you are in the world, you are 3.6 degrees away from anybody yeah. in the world. Yeah. So they did, that was 2011. They did the same study in 2014, not that many years, and it was like down to 3.1. Mm-hmm. So that might not sound to the layman like, oh, you're still a three, but I think that is a humongous yeah. uh, change. You, a couple percentage points, you think about how many thousands of people, but just the fact that you know, those are just people that are on Facebook. Yeah. Think about how many people aren't on Facebook. That's right. So, so you're three people away from essentially getting any problem solved back mm-hmm. to your reciprocity ring. It's just a matter of, hey, are you able to connect the dots? Do you have the knowledge, you have the skill, and you have the desire? Mm-hmm. So that's something that I want to also talk yeah. about. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on just that study. Yeah, you know, that's what makes networks so powerful mm-hmm. is that we're, mm-hmm. we're connected to almost everyone if you go two, three, or four degrees of separation. The real challenge is how do you tap into that? Mm-hmm. So we have our set of direct contacts, but then they have their own friends and acquaintances, and it goes out in these different rings, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's what these tools are meant to solve or meant to address that problem. So like give it to us. We've got this incredible ring that is all technology, all done through technology. So people are not in the same place at the same time. And it's for HR directors. It's HR directors from well over a thousand companies. And one HR director in this company has a problem, but you know, it's probably been solved, you know, in three other companies out there, (laughs) right? But But they don't know who, but you're in this giant network of like 1300 HR directors, you post your request. And so I'm in this too. And, and it was just amazing the generosity that people had. Somebody would say, oh, you're looking for a, you're revamping your part-time employee policy and you want to know how to structure benefits. Or sometimes really complicated technical HR problems where I kind of understand them, but not really. They'll say five other HR directors, five different companies will say, oh, here's how we do it. And by the way, Here's my 20 slide PowerPoint deck, how we did it. And we see this stuff routinely, but it solves that problem that, you know, Adam, you pointed out is that it's a couple of degrees out, but if you're in one of these large networks and you will have the confidence in yourself that you'll make a request, a well-structured, a smart request, and then people are just so generous and willing to help. So your technology, what it does for people is amazing because it does what I, what my business tries to teach people how to do. But those who are fortunate enough to use your technology, they're kind of skipping a whole lot of work that really goes into building relationships. They're getting the benefit of being in this ring of other people. And it's, it's powerful. I'll give you an example of, um, so I'm in one of the rings, the small ring, Larry, or, or maybe it was Sarah put me in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not in HR, so I couldn't be in that one that you're talking mm-hmm. about. But anyways, it's a small ring and they get some random requests. I don't know if it's as busy as all the others, get like maybe one or two a day. And I've, I contributed to somebody's, to be honest, I don't remember what it was. They sent me a thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took it offline a little bit, just started talking. They then followed up with me, I don't know, a week or two later. Oh, by the way, you should speak to, I think his name was Alan. I spoke to Alan, nothing happened there, but I was actually able to help Alan. Mm. Alan then helped somebody else that then 
that person, I don't know if you're following all oh, these yeah, deviations yeah. out, that then was referred to a guy named Matt, who I talked with, mm -hmm. and Matt then ended up putting me in touch with someone that I can probably do some business with. So again, as a result of the ring, and then just continually just giving, yep. again, the whole idea is to keep giving and not expect anything, but it, it just does. That's a well, you know, wonderful illustration, yeah. you know, how the network would work and all those indirect connections. And you're absolutely right, you know, a focus on giving and generosity, helping without expectations of return. And as a byproduct of that, you create these connections and people are very willing and they really want to help you. As soon as you express what that need is, you make that request, they're there and they want to help. Yeah, it's really amazing. The tech, you know what I think? I think it would be a perfect marriage is, is your program for teaching people how to do this in the proper way, connected with our technology, mm. that would be super powerful. Yeah. People just need to understand it because they don't, they have a misunderstanding of what it is and how to do it. And again, you just got to trust the process. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I really, I like the technology. I think what you guys are onto is something that is just fantastic. And it's good to hear those kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. But um, back to just like the social networks in general or, or network science, how, what prompted you to do the CBOT uh, analysis? Yeah. So, so I mentioned that my PhD is in sociology, yeah. uh, but my undergraduate degree is in finance. Okay. And I would say that I got it backwards. Usually, I was a little confused. Uh -huh. Usually, people get an undergraduate degree in sociology That's and they can't, degrees, can't yeah. get a job. Yeah. And then you go yeah. to business school, yeah. right? Uh -huh. So I did it the other way around. But it, it turned out to be really fortunate because it was a common, you know, innovations really arise where things overlap, kind of like the scales of a fish yeah. where they overlap <laughs> like that. Yeah. And so I was looking for a topic for my dissertation. I was just starting to learn about network science. And I had this knowledge about finance and the markets. And I said, I don't know, maybe there's a way of putting these two things together. And then, you know, being in Chicago, it was, it was just, you could just take the train downtown and you've got some major commodity markets in the world. And so there was a, a kind of an accident of location as well, being there. And then seeing how that all came together and realizing that it was possible to map it out. Yeah. So how did that, how did you do that? Again, what did you, you had nothing to go off of. This is, you, you created this. So for a, an earlier class required us to kind of go out into an organizational setting and I guess be a, an anthropologist to go into a setting. And so I was doing this for another class and I would take the train, I'd go downtown and I would spend time on the floor of these big exchanges. And what I realized is that, so this is just in the beginning of technology mm -hmm. for them, is that if you and I made a trade, it would be recorded and then there would be a timestamp record in the computer. So all the transactions are now, you know, exactly when they took place. And I was able to get a hold of that data and then reconstruct all the networks from it? the data. Yeah, mapped it that way. And what was your thesis and what was your conclusion? So what I found was that there was, because they trade in these groups. Yeah. They call them crowds. And so it's a group and it's like, if you see it, it's, it seems like chaos, yeah. you know, but it makes sense to them, right? Because yeah, yeah. there's a lot of money at stake. Very noisy, a lot of gesturing in these big groups. But since I knew who was trading with whom, I could look at it as a network. And what I found is that there were two different kinds of groups or crowds. One was one that when trading got busy, they would just kind of intensify their trading. They would just trade more with one another. And in another group, I found it was really different. It would grow to a size where it would started to break up, kind of fragment into small groups. I said, well, this is really different because different networks, a network that's kind of becoming more denser yeah. and more concentrated. Here's a network that's fragmenting and breaking up. And then I saw there was a correlation with the prices that came out of it. 
that here where they became more concentrated and built a denser network, it tended to make the, the variability of prices kind of went down. And in this other one, it was basically one market that became three. Mm. And that meant things were trading at slightly different prices. And so the volatility, volatility started yeah. to go up like this. It was mapping the networks and then showing they were related to prices. I mean, that was the real thing. Now that was, I wasn't expecting that, but then when I saw that there was these two different types of groups, I said, I, there must be an effect on price. So then what happened to that? It's groundbreaking. Yeah, I'm so, assuming you got an A. <laughs> yeah, you got, got your, you yeah, so, so got your this, PhD. So, yeah, so this became it became my dissertation. And uh, when you're in a professor, you're required to you know write articles and publish them in academic journals. Yep. And so that was my first big publication was was about that. Gotcha. And it was published in the American Journal of Sociology, which is if you have insomnia, then I recommend this journal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what have you, all these years, what have, what have been some of your biggest takeaways on this network science? What are the things that, that have really kind of, what are your big takeaways? Yeah, so we take it all the way back to that question that Cheryl asked me was, well, what oh, do you yeah. do, right? Yeah. How do you get people to behave differently? What do you tell them besides just stories? And so that's when we came up with the reciprocity ring. And back then, I thought that getting people to be generous to help, that that was going to be the problem. That was rarely the case. The problem was getting people to ask for what they needed. Wow. Who would have thunk? Yeah, it was really a surprise. I really thought that, because I used to focus on kind of preaching them about the importance of generosity and all that. But when they were engaging the activity, a lot of people were struggling, like, oh, what do I need? How do I ask for it? And so I shifted and I spent a lot of time thinking about and training people about the SMART criteria that we talked about for a well-formed request. How do you go through? So in my new book, I talk about uh, three different methods for figuring out what you need mm, and the, how to ask for it. The new book, All I Have to Do is Ask. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Tell us about it. I'm sorry to keep bouncing all over, but do you mind talking to me about the book? Yeah, so I could trace the origin of that book all the way back to that insight we had long ago that getting people to ask was the catalyst that drives the whole process of giving and receiving. Mm. So if you think about it, if everyone wants to give, but no one's willing to receive or ask, nothing happens. It's really the, the request that drives the giving, receiving cycle. So I've had that insight. Reciprocity ring is one way of doing it. But over the years, I started collecting examples of other ways of doing it. And so the book is kind of a toolbox. Here's all the ways this can be done. There's other parts to talk about. What are the barriers to asking? How to overcome them? Uh, there's is lots it all of that's covered in here? Yep, that's okay, covered, good, yeah, good. So, yeah, there's- Who's your audience? Sorry to cut you off. Who's the primary target for, I mean, obviously everyone, but. Yeah, there... so the audience is primarily a business audience okay. or a, a people who want to be better at networking, people who um, want to advance in their careers. So it could be for everyone from new hires, what do I do, all the way up to leaders. How do I set the tone that I create a culture of workplace generosity? Mm. I have a great quote in there from IDEO, the design firm. Yep. And they're well known for their culture of helping. And they said, well, the reason we have a culture of helping is because we, we have a culture of asking. Mm. Because it's the asking, they make asking normal, routine, expected. You don't have to fear that asking is going to make you look bad. Not asking will make you look bad, mm. right? Because it's like, if you're still hammering away on a problem, maybe it could be solved quicker and more effectively by tapping your network, asking so, for help. 
I know that there is an importance in how you ask. So like, for example, uh, or maybe you can validate this, you know, it's better to ask for someone's advice as opposed to just asking for help. Have you heard that before? Have you studied that? Like, so when you ask someone, if you want something, hey, can I get your advice on this project I'm working on, as opposed to, can you help me on the project? Just by the using that one word difference. If you look at the sentence, that one word difference, I forgot the statistic, but it's like a significant increase in the get that you receive from that one word in the ask. Yeah, so I think that gets back to, you wanna make a very specific request, a specific ask. You have to explain why it's important, why you're making the request. People often assume that others just will know that. Adam's making a request. You might assume that I would know why it's important, but I always coach people, so you need to explain why it's important. Why is it meaningful? Why does it help advance the organization's goal? Why does it help you get that job better, done better? How does it help you be of greater service to that customer? You know, the why kind of thing. And I think you could ask, asking for help is kind of generic, but sometimes it is advice that you need, or you need somebody to be a sounding board. But you can ask for information, ideas, ask for opportunities, connections, referrals, emotional support, all kinds of things. And so I have lots of exercises to help you figure out what is it you're trying to accomplish? Then what do you need? How do you turn that into one of these smart requests? And then how do you figure out who to ask? And this is all laid out in the mm-hmm. book. Yep. So it's very clear. Yeah. So there's a roadmap for them. Yeah, there's for a roadmap are, for it. Yeah. And so there's an arc to the book. So the first part of the book is about kind of the problem and the promise. Here's all the benefits we know uh-huh. if you have these cycles of giving and receiving driven by the request. The story about Christina is in there. Here's the obstacles to do it, like fear that you're going to appear to be incompetent. Although, you know, the research there, Adam, says that as long as you make a thoughtful request, a smart request, people will think you are more competent, not less. I've heard that. Yeah. Maybe Larry told me that. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Didn't think so, it was Larry. Yeah, yeah, Larry yeah. and I were on the same wavelength. Yeah, 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 definitely okay. the same wavelength. <laughs> and so sometimes you have to you know, overcome your incorrect beliefs or assumptions. Mm-hmm. So that's the beginning Cognitive, of the book. Uh, biases. Yeah, your, your, we all have them, right? Yeah. Or sometimes people think, I don't help because I'm sure there's no one who can help me. I hear that all the time. Hmm. And so there's been studies done in New York, for example, studies done that have shown that people are, almost everyone's willing to help if you ask. No, let's flip it. What about the person that I call the asshole? The person (laughs) that is is always asking and never giving. At what point, where does that cross the line or where? Well, there's definitely people across the line. So there are four major types of people and... Oh, this is one that we're going to want to point. Okay. Four types. Talk okay. To it. Talk to us. <laughs> All right. So there are four main types. One, the best place to be as a person, a team, or an organization is what I call the giver requester. So people who are generous, they freely give, they help anyone who needs help, and they ask for what they need when they need it. That's the best place to be. And the research shows that those people are highly esteemed, they have a great reputation, and they get the inflow of resources they need to be successful. So those are the people that people know they're asking the, the person that's giving them knows that they're a kind of person that, that they could ask us for information as well. Yeah, correct. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So another type, which is can be a trap, is called the generous or overly generous giver is another type. The overly generous giver is somebody who is very generous, very helpful, but they don't ask for what they need. And sometimes they become burned out and they're not getting the inflow of resources that they need to be productive themselves. That's what uh, Adam Grant talks about in his book. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. He's that's the person that just doesn't make it. Yeah. You burn out. Yeah. Sorry to yeah. cut you off. <laughs> yeah. And I find that the higher you go up in an organization, you often find more and more of these overly generous givers because they leaders feel that they have to have all the answers and that asking for help is going to convey they're not good leaders. But 
A good leader is a role model of the behavior that you want, which is to be a giver and a requester. So the other type is a taker, the person who is taking a lot more than they're giving. And there are people like that. Hopefully they become enlightened and realize that they need to balance the scorecard, so to speak. But another way is other people stop helping them and they earn a reputation for being a taker. And then the fourth category is a sort of an unhappy place of people who are lone wolves who are just trying to grind it out themselves. They never ask for help and they have their head down and they never help anyone. And over time, they're probably the least productive people and the people most disconnected from the network. It's those people that are responsible. I shouldn't call it responsible, but uh, this whole loneliness epidemic. Are yes. you familiar, familiar yeah. with what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you know, so I was just reading, maybe it was a month or two ago in England. Also, I don't know if you know that they've got a Minister of Loneliness in the UK. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, 2017, no. they started that. World Health Organization identified stress and loneliness as the biggest concerns of the WHO. And recently, they implemented something called chat benches in, I forgot if it's the London proper or mm-hmm. just in the UK, but literally there is a bench that you can go on and it'll say chat bench. So someone wow. can know that if they are lonely, they can go there and it's okay to talk to somebody. Wow. That's yeah. a great idea. Yeah, it is a very good idea. You know what it is? That they that gives them permission. That's exactly what. To converse, permission to ask. Yeah. Right? That, and it normalizes it and it says it's expected, said it's a good thing. Correct. Um, but it's just crazy that it's come yeah. to that. Yeah, so the former U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek, Vivek Murthy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's writing a book about this now. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, a book about Is that what, why he stepped down or that's just what he's doing? Yeah, yeah that's what he's doing now. Is that, So he's writing a book about loneliness and connection. In fact, the reason I know him is because we've talked about this whole idea of social capital connections, high quality connections, yeah. which is part of his book. So I'm looking forward to that. Coming oh, wow. Out. When's that coming out? I'd be very interested At, to... It'd be in 2020, but I'm not sure exactly when. Yeah, that's going to be, again, he's the one that spearheaded this whole... That's right, yeah. Yes, yeah, so you should ask him about what's been going on. But the I loneliness will, yeah. is, uh, it's pretty great. You know, they're, they're pioneers themselves in terms of being ahead of this. They've analyzed the data. They've realized how much money is lost from people that are lonely, that become depressed, that aren't working, that aren't working at full potential. Yeah. You know, there's this whole domino effect that's happening. Yeah. You need to implement your technology and get more people to read your book so they can, you know, yeah. do this connection. Yeah. Do you know who Johan Hari is? He's a famous, uh, I guess he's known for author, but, he, but he's a journalist. And he wrote Lost Connections or Chasing the Scream. Did mm. you ever hear of him? But Tell me more. So oh, I'm going to totally, really, I'm not going to do a good job of it. But Lost Connections is about, it's essentially these people that are, uh, oh, it's the opioid. He went after the whole opioid thing. And what he realized is that the depression is really just not being connected. Yeah, That's what it is. There's no connection. They're not, they're not deep. For those are the people, that's how they chase this this high, mm-hmm. which is really at the end of the day, it's just about being connected. Yeah. So back to your book, so you've got the four types. There's it's it's designed, or I guess I mean obviously everybody can benefit it from it, but it's really kind of catered towards the corporate environment. Who are other people that you think would really enjoy or benefit from reading this book? Yeah, so there's a an arc to the book. There's a chapter that is devoted to the individual. Mm-hmm. How do you figure out what you need and ask for it in an appropriate way? And then there's a chapter, so it moves up a level to, I call it tools for teams. What are all the tools that teams can use to create this culture of giving and receiving help? So it's at the group level. And then there's another chapter on what you can do as an entire organization to ask across boundaries. How do you connect across silos, for example, which is a chronic problem in organizations. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because I have a 
video series coming out. It's uh, how to network within a large corporate matrix environment. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to get your perspective on things that people can do within the organizations. Because again, these large corporate matrix environments, they can be, they don't do a good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's an example I talk about in the book called a cross collaboration workshop. Mm -hmm. And the cross collaboration workshop, I learned from an executive at a large automaker who was in charge of two different divisions. He was in charge of advanced engineering. So they're thinking, you know, 10 years ahead, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about all these new engineering breakthroughs. And he was also in charge of racing. So racing, they're week to week to week, and they're focused on fixing the car, making yeah, it better for the next race. And he said, you know, if we can get these two groups to learn from one another, could be very helpful for both of them. He actually came through one of our programs and we did the reciprocity ring with him. So he invited me to come up. And so what we did is that we created this workshop where we had people from advanced engineering and racing in the same group in this giving, getting activity. And they naturally built connections that way. Mm. Uh, and then he has these workshops that he calls the cross collaboration workshops where people for, they'll have three hours. People from both groups will come. Uh, the engineers will set the agenda, uh, the agenda, what they're interested in, and they will spend their time focusing on that particular topic. They might have a little presentation, but then a group will present what they're working on, that kind of help that they need, so getting back to asking mm -hmm. and normalizing that whole process. And then there's opportunity for people to connect across the groups. So those are a couple of very concrete ways that can be really super effective. Yeah. Are you familiar with the edge effect? No, I'm not. Yeah, so the edge, that's essentially, I think it came from like an agrarian where two different types of vegetation from maybe like a warm climate and a cold climate. And at some point they merge. Mm -hmm. And what happens? What's the outcome of that? Oh, I see. So, it's great. so, yeah. so the edge effect is the same. So it happened with like, it happened in music. I think that's where it's more, maybe there's like a, a pop star and a rap, a rapper or something. Uh, actually country and rap. Like there's mm -hmm. this, this guy called Little, uh, a song called Old Town Road or something. Mm. And that's a perfect example of like this fusion or two different genres that have combined and it's come out with this. Now it's this pop. I think it's the leading, this Old Town Road, the longest running single. Yeah. Um, and it's a result of essentially two different types of music that have come together. Yeah, it's, well, a, yeah, it's a great example of that innovations rise when things overlap. Correct. Two very disparate areas that, that actually overlap. So I can tell you another example if you'd like. Yeah, about yeah, that. please. I learned this from Jim Malazzi, who was the CEO of Prudential Real Estate and Relocation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he had a meeting of all his sales associates from around the world, about 3,000 or more people. And when he came out, he was the new CEO. He came out on stage and made some introductory remarks. And then he asked everyone to pull out their cell phone. There's this collective groan uh -huh. and everyone's going, oh, we got to turn them off. He said, no, he says, turn on your cell phones. And he asked for his cell phone, got it on stage. And he flashed up on the screen a text, a place where they could text or email an idea. And he said, okay, I want you right now and for the next 24 hours of this conference to text or email any ideas about the best way to find and retain a great client. And so in short order, they generated over 2,000 quality ideas. Uh, they published them all in a book. Mm -hmm. And this became, this released so much creativity and so many great ideas that they did this on an annual basis and published a new book of these ideas every year. So there's an example of that reaching across geographic silos oh, yeah. and making a request, or you made a request, everyone generously offered, but then it came back to them in a book of great ideas. Huh, that's really interesting. <laughs> I get a question that I was thinking of while you were talking before and it just came back to me regarding an ask. 
do you find that there's a, or is there a difference between men that, and women that ask? You know, there are ages and are there certain cultures where more people are inclined to ask yeah. and the quality of the ask? There has been some research done on that. Oh, in fact, one thing that, that I have in the book is an assessment. Mm -hmm. So you can assess yourself on two dimensions on how frequently you give or you help for very specific things and then how frequently you ask on very specific things as well. And that's in the book, but we also created a, an online version, which is a free assessment. Can you share that with the, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we have a free assessment that allows you to diagnose where you are on two dimensions, giving and helping. And if you go to all you have to do is ask.com, you can take the assessment for free. You get a, a very nice computer generated report and it will give you comparative statistics to see how you compare to a larger population of assessment takers. You can see like how you compare to men and women, people from different size organizations, people at different levels in an organization. Huh, that sounds interesting. But you know what? We found no difference between men and women. How about that? Yeah, I was, I was surprised. What about age? Is it like you find... There is some difference by age. Okay. Um, and it's probably the first study ever where there's no difference. That's yeah. an age. What, what do you make of that? What do you take? You know, so, so I did some research on the gender difference when okay. I was writing the book. And the research has kind of been conclusive. There are some studies that say that women are more likely to be generous mm -hmm. and men are more likely to ask to be takers. Other studies say there's no difference. And so it's kind of all over the place. It depends a little bit on the context. Mm. If you're in a say an all male group or an all female group that might make a difference so the context seems to have an gotcha, effect yeah but it's hard to draw a general conclusion about gender differences and then in our assessment we're seeing that at least so far there's no difference between men and women that's really interesting there was a, a study and i lost the research i'd written it down i thought it was fantastic it was a couple of years ago but essentially they studied i forgot which company it was but the men and women that were networking and that Women actually did it less, but the time that they did it, it was a lot more productive. Their time was significantly more impactful. They got deeper, quicker, and that networking produced more sales results. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was interesting. And so yeah. to hear that there's no difference, maybe there weren't enough data points in their study versus yours. And it seems to depend on the context, yeah. you know, more than anything else. You give me an example, like the context, meaning like a party versus being in the corporate boardroom or what do you so it could be the what's the composition of the group mm -hmm. what are the norms in the group mm -hmm. is it a psychologically safe place to ask because we know if it's psychologically unsafe people are not going to make requests can we talk about psychological do you know much about psychological yeah, yeah. safety because that's something again that's a term that i use a lot and people yeah. don't know what that is yeah can you give a, a definition of psychological safety and why it is so important. And yeah. then are you familiar with Google's psychological safety study? Yes. Yes, I think our audience could greatly benefit okay. from an education yeah. on that. Yeah, so psychological safety, the, well, actually the pioneering research on psychological safety was done by Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School and we've all learned from what she has done. And psychological safety means that people feel safe to speak up, to question authority, to ask questions and to ask for what they need. And when people are in an environment that's psychologically safe, they will do all those things and the outcomes are much better. Significantly better, like three times better. <laughs> yeah, and so there's a study done at Google of their teams, they call them uh, G teams, and they found that a number of elements or characteristics were essential for a successful team, but number one was psychological safety, that people could speak up, that they could make requests, that 
they had the ability to do that. Yeah, so important. So how do we get to that? I forgot how we, yeah. we were just talking about. The well, there's, of, there's, uh, there's a couple of things. So the leader can set the tone. Yeah. A leader should be a role model of the behavior that they want. They can't ask other people to be generous and to make requests if they're not doing the same themselves. So that's important yeah. that the, the leader is willing to do that, to do both, to model that behavior. And then how do you do it in a group? That's a start. So I have a, a model in the book. It's a very simple one that basically says, if you have psychological safety, all the tools I talk about will work better. But if you don't have psychological safety, the tools will still help you get started. And once you get started, it will become psychologically safe over time. Mm. So it's kind of a, yeah, a circle. circle yeah. And you can jump in any place you want. So you could start with the tools. And if you start in a psychologically unsafe place and you start with these tools, then people will make safe requests. They'll just put their toe in the water, but then they'll see that it's working. Asking and giving help starts to become normal and routine, and then they'll do it more and more. Yeah. So I got a lot of pushback with a client that I was working with, a large global organization, where they said, listen, you can train us on this psychological safety, but you're in a big corporate environment where it's cutthroat. And people are going to be a little too, because one other thing is being psychologically safe and to be comfortable with who you are. Yeah. Because a lot of times people have a corporate face and then they have a, when they're at home face and they're two different people. I've got friends that I'm, I'm like, who are you? I'm yeah. confused. They're so different. So the pushback is you really can't be psychologically safe because all it takes is one bad apple yeah. in your ring, if you will, that can take you down. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a couple of things. Everyone yeah. has a, what I call a sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. It might be big, it might be small, but it's the people you interact with. And that in your interactions, you can still do this. Mm -hmm. In those interactions, you can still listen to other people, think about how you might be able to help them. You think about the projects they're working on, maybe you read something and you can forward it to them. You could always be helpful, even in that small sphere of influence. And in that sphere, you can still ask for help. So this it's like a little safe spot inside this larger organization that might be unsafe. You could build your network outside of the organization and you could use that as an opportunity to give and get help from one another. So it's outside of the organization. But I have to say every now and then I've found workplaces where I think it's hopeless. Yeah. That it's just going to be nasty and cutthroat. Sometimes when my students have been in those situations and over time I've counseled them to get out. Yeah. You could make this a little bit better, but sometimes it. you've just got to, you've just got to find another job in another company in another industry. Sometimes you just have to do that. Yeah. Have you noticed industries is what you're teaching industry agnostic, or have you had better success in technology versus financial services versus healthcare? Yeah. So it's not industry specific, okay. no, not at all. And so the examples I have in the book cover all kinds of industries, everything from heavy manufacturing, to airlines, to high tech, to services. The whole thing about giving and getting help, it's universal. It's a human thing. It's human. We're talking about human yeah, connections, right? It's tribal. It's human connections. We are hardwired, hardwired for connections, for belonging. I think we're hardwired for reciprocity. A lot of things can get in the way. Our educational system might teach us to shut down, just focus on your task, yeah. keep your head down. We call cooperation cheating. You know, all of that. You have to unlearn that. And sometimes workplaces are not very conducive to it, but it's a basic human need. I think we're wired for it. And so the techniques and tools will work any place. 
So there was just an article, I'll send it to you. I think it was the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal where 200 of the top executives got together and they said, listen, the, the capitalism as it's working, we're kind of at the top of capitalism. We need to now reevaluate how we're going to, what's the next generation of being a Fortune 50 company or Fortune yeah. 500 company? And their targets or the missions that they're on are um, like sustainability, so social impact, mm -hmm. I forgot what the other one is, but the third one is actually reinvesting in the people, yeah. making it about the social capital, right, enhancing, right. you know, that's the focus. So something like what you're talking about could really benefit. I, I'm going to send you that article. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd like to see yeah, that. Yeah, remind me we're done. I think that's something that you might want to kind of push out also as a marketing tool. What are you hoping happens as a result of this book? Well, I'm hoping that it makes a positive difference in people's lives. Yeah as an answer to all the questions I had received over years of how do you do this? Mm -hmm. And they'd say, okay, they say, you've inspired us, we've learned from you, but how do you do it? Do we have to reinvent the wheel? And so I've collected a toolbox of tools that are proven that work, and I hope that people will use them to be better at achieving their goals, of making a greater contribution to the world, uh, to living their missions, to be generous, and to ask for what they need. Who are the kinds of people that you want to hear from that are listening to this podcast? Who are the types of people that could help with your mission? I would love to hear from people who applied the approaches and tools in the book and it made a positive difference in their lives, wherever it might be. Yeah. You know, the story I told before about Christine and yeah. the little girl in Romania, I have a thousand stories of really incredible things have happened once people are in a context using tools that enable them to give and get help from one another. I've come to believe that anything is possible, that miracles can happen yeah. if you do that. And so I'd love to hear about miracles. And it can be a little small miracle. It could be a little breakthrough that somebody has that made a difference for them or their family, for their community. Someone who got that promotion that they really wanted, you know, the person who took over the helm of an organization and said, you know, I want to create a thriving workplace where people want to come to work that they want to contribute. I want this to be a place that they love and they bring that positive energy back home with them, right? So the ring obviously can be used in corporate. It can be used in school. Are there other areas that you can see the ring, other places that could benefit from using the ring? Yeah, so it, it's used widely in higher education and business mm -hmm. schools, for example, all, all around the world. It's used by uh, various associations when they've had like a, a, an annual meeting is a great place to do that. So we did it recently with GMAC, which is the organization that administers all of the uh, exams to get into graduate school for business. Mm. So if you had to take an exam to go in to get your MBA, you had to take one of their exams. And so they had their annual conference, and I gave a talk on the topic of this book, and then we had them do the reciprocity ring. Because the thing is that they're all these different universities, same industry, so to speak, and they're encountering problems that are new for them, but somebody else at another university has yeah, solved yeah, that yeah, problem, but you got to got to connect the dots, right? So there's that's an example. It's used in heavy manufacturing. Uh, it's used in some big automakers have used it. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield would be another example. The Manufacturing Institute uses it. We've had law firms, multi-office law firms use our, our tools. Idea, yeah. You know, because same thing. You know, they're yeah. different offices. Some lawyers struggling here, trained to focus on that problem. And this encourages them to pick their head up and ask, and they discover that, oh, the attorney in the other office over there across the state, they've solved the problem. So this is a lot of solving problems. What about from a sales standpoint? Is there a sales angle that this could help with? I mean, obviously, you know, for introductions, but... I think there definitely is a sales angle. 
I always have radical advice for salespeople, which is to stop thinking about making a sale and start thinking about benefiting the other person. And I have this, the best story I have on this is someone who was a banker. Her name was Janet. She lived in Chicago and her goal was to become the bank's most productive and wealthiest loan officer. She did commercial loans. She had this kind of this epiphany, you know, from this approach and said, I'm going to stop thinking about the person on the other side of my desk as a loan to be made, but rather a human being who has real needs and wants. And I'm going to actually have a conversation with that person, maybe an interview, if you want to call it that. And I'm going to find out what that person really needs and help them. And so what she found, she'd say, you know, Adam, you really don't need a loan. What you need is a business coach. And here I've got a couple of friends who are great business coaches. I'll put you in touch with them. Or she'd say, you do need a loan, but my bank can't give you the best terms. I'm going to send you down the street to my competitor who can give you better terms for your particular loan. I like her abundance uh, yeah. mindset. It, it is an abundance mindset. She even started the practice of, of sharing a cab in downtown Chicago during the day on a business day just so she could try uh, strike up a conversation with people and see if there's a way that she could help. She became. Wow, she went all in. She became the. I want to meet Janet. Yes. So she became <laughs> the most productive and the wealthiest loan officer at this bank. Why? She unselfishly helped other people. Yep. They sent all of their business partners, friends, and associates saying, look, you've got to go to Janet when you need a loan because she's going to treat you right. You know she's going to do the right thing. If it's not a loan, she's going to help you find something else. And so it all came back full circle to her where she generated a huge book of business and became very wealthy as a result of not thinking about becoming wealthy, but thinking about other people that she could help. That's a great story. Knowing that as a byproduct, it would all come back. That's a great story. I like that. I want to meet Janet. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she's still at the, I think yeah. she's still there at that bank downtown Chicago. How'd you meet her? I met her through one of our events yeah. you know, a while ago. So how do you amazing. stay? So you meet these, you meet some amazing people and you just throwing out a couple of amazing people the circles that you've surrounded yourself with and students that have come through that are famous. Yes. What do you do? How do you stay in touch with these people? Technology certainly helps. Yep. That's a way of doing that. So I use all the tools. I use LinkedIn and of course, email and mm -hmm. texting and all of that. And I've had so many wonderful students over the years and been able to stay in touch with a lot of them. Yeah. What's a great thing is that they were students sometimes when they were quite young and now they've gone on to become leaders of industry, yeah, you know, and yeah, I just, yeah. and when I hear one of my former students being interviewed by the Wall Street Press or something, it's like that, I go, <laughs> wow, it's just wonderful to know that you knew that person and maybe made a difference in that person's life. But what I try to do is to just stay in circulation, to, to meet people. And what drives me is to meet interesting people. I'm not saying that I'm going to only talk to people who are in positions sure. of power or influence, but rather interesting people. I try to think if there's a way that I can help. And uh, I always say, I end every executive education session the same way. I said, here's my email, here's my LinkedIn, here's my website, here's a website for the book. I said, if you need help, just ask me. And if I can't help you, I probably know someone who can help you. And it's just a, it's a nice way to live and to be connected with people. And being a professor is a blessing to be able to work with so many young people who are going to go out into the world. And then you find when, like, for example, what I needed some examples from my book, I knew who to ask. You <laughs> yeah, know, one of my yeah. former PhD students is now high up at Google. So she was helpful. And I met people at IDEO. I even use our Givitas technology to get stories for the book. That's great. Yeah, there was, you know, so I know you're in one of the Givitas yeah, groups. Yeah. And I mentioned the one with the HR directors. And we have other ones that we've created. 
and I needed some, some fresh stories. And so I went in and I made a request. I said, I'm writing this book. All you have to do is ask. And I need a couple of stories about X, whatever it might be. And people were so generous. So I met so many new people through the technology. And I have a very, very long list of acknowledgements in the book because I kept track of every <laughs> single person really? who helped me. And I've got their mailing address. And I'm sending them a, a copy of the book as a thank you That's for so helping cool. me out. That is, that is so cool. What are some of the requests that you get people reach out to you for? Oh, let's see. Because so you must get hammered with requests. And then how do you, do you allocate a certain amount of time every day? Or what is it that you do to manage all of these requests? So I would get requests from students who need a letter of reference or mm -hmm. recommendation from me. And I don't say yes to everyone. Yeah. I think that that wouldn't be of service to them or of service to who I might be referring them to. So if it's a student who has done well, even if they haven't done well, but they've had a, a breakthrough, if there's a good reason yeah. to write that letter, then I will definitely do that. And I think it's important to, and if I don't write a letter, I'll tell people why. Yeah. But with the idea of doing it in a compassionate way so that it's the focus is on development. No, I'm not going to this time, but let, but let me explain why. Yeah. I hope that that would be helpful for them. Usually requests I get are that end up being requests for connections. Like, do you know someone who, oh, so I got one. Do you know that someone is an expert on measuring gender inequality in my workplace? It was a CEO of a company mm -hmm. that I had met. And I said, well, I can, I can assure you that I don't know how to do that, <laughs> but I probably could find someone. Yeah. And so, and then you know how these things work. So I'm on a committee at the university. There were some accounting professors on that committee. Some I got to know by doing work together, mm -hmm. you know, you form connections kind of as a byproduct of doing yep. that. So I asked this guy, I said, well, I have this friend who's a CEO and he's looking for how you measure gender inequality and in his workplace, because he's, he's very focused on that. He wants to have gender equity in, in his company. And sure enough, the guy said, well, you know, I know someone at Harvard Business School who just did his dissertation on this topic and he's the world's expert. So, so it was like, yeah, just got to <laughs> ask. And so I connected that CEO with that person at Harvard and the guy at Harvard got, you know, immediate use for the research he'd been doing. And the guy that was a CEO got the help that he needed. And so in our Givitas groups that we're in, so I'm in multiple ones, I will look at, that's another way I would help. I look at the requests that come in through the, like the digest that we get. Mm -hmm. I scan them and if there's one I can help with, I'll help. But I find it's often help is you, you should read this book or you should go to our Center for Positive Organizations. We have a tool that will help you there. Or here's the person you need to talk to. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned something that I think that we should talk about before I let you go making an introduction so important so there's like a lot of steps first you got to get an ask then you got to get the you got to make the connection but then you got to facilitate the introduction that's where i see a lot of these connections drop off mm -hmm. so i'm a big fan of the double opt-in are you familiar with that the double, no, no, so me. so double opt-in meaning so say i met someone who's really interesting interested in on how to ask and i'm like oh my god there's no better person in this world than dr wayne baker <laughs> so i gotta introduce you to wayne so it's cool. It's great that I thought that they're, you know, that, and then what happens is a lot of people, their intentions are good. They'll you know, just say, Amy, Amy's interested in this and they don't check with you. Mm -hmm. So they just say, Hey, Dr. Baker, Amy, you guys should connect because of this. Boom. And move on. You might not have time for Amy. Right. So now this is just completely backfired because, Hey, I was trying to do a nice thing. I've already now spent my time, thought about the connection did that, made this introduction, but now I've maybe pissed you off because now you feel bad because number one, you don't have the time. Mm -hmm. Number two, you now have to say no. You're frustrated with me 
for doing that because now you've had to say no. So it's just a complete breakdown when all the intention was good and maybe you could have done it, yeah, but right. uh, meaning the double opt-in is that, hey, I should check with you first mm -hmm. to say, hey, Dr. Baker, here's this person that's reached out to me. I also like to try to find the mutual benefit mm -hmm. and here there's someone that, that needs this help and hey, maybe it's a way that it can promote your book. Yeah but getting your okay before, and then, hey, can I also, which email address yeah. should I use? Because you gotta be sensitive these days with yeah, getting yeah. out. So there's, there's a lot of little things that can make the difference in an introduction between making this introduction a fantastic introduction versus having this thing completely backfire. Yeah, so I don't know if you have any sentiments on that or how you go about with your introduction. Yeah, so, so I would coach people through some elements of that and all that, but I just learned something from you here, and I think I'd like to bring that back to my class. Yeah. And the teacher about that, <laughs> you know, that it. approach. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think that's really helpful to do that because, you know, you want to, you only would close the gap between those two people if it was in their mutual benefit, not mm -hmm. just the benefit of one person, to be respectful of the time. And like you say, making sure that do you want to use your work email or is it your personal email you want? Or would you rather have a text? That kind of thing. So I think those are all really important characteristics. Well, if you are going to bring it back to your class, I'm going to continue going then. All right. Okay. Good. So also there may be LinkedIn is the introduction. Mm -hmm. Again, you need to know who the other best form of medium for communicating because emails could get lost. Yeah. So LinkedIn and then the beauty of a LinkedIn. So say, just let's just use that medium. Then there's a trail. So it's almost like a database because say five years down the road, you forgot about Amy or Amy mm -hmm. forgot about you. Maybe you haven't asked for Amy mm -hmm. now because Amy works for IDEO and you've lost your contact, but you, you see Amy works for IDEO. But if you didn't have a trail within LinkedIn, you've forgotten how you might know each other. Mm -hmm. So now you might say, oh, hey, Amy, remember we spoke back in whatever date that was five mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. So there's like a little database trail. So that's one thing. The other thing, and this is depending on how much time you have and how important it is. But when I make an introduction, not only do I make the, I make it very clear who's to follow up. Yes. Because sometimes it's just, you know, you also get egos where people feel like, oh, well, I'm the person in the position of authority. So even though you made the introduction, mm -hmm. I've got to wait for them to follow up. So I make it very clear who's to follow up. Amy, Wayne's a busy guy. Here's the best time to follow up with him. Mm -hmm. And here's the time or something. So you try to be very clear. And then if you want to take it another step further to make sure that this went through, I will then follow up mm -hmm. afterwards. Maybe I'll ask Amy, Amy, let me know how the introduction went. Yeah. Because, or maybe it got busy. Just to, again, it's a lot of steps. Yeah. But if you do it right, that's the complete difference yeah. in the execution of the introduction. So it does take more work, but the end product is significantly better. The outcome. If you're going to spend, I'd rather spend ten minutes and get it fully executed and have an awesome outcome than spend two or three minutes that nothing's going to happen because then your time is gone and time is the most valuable commodity on this earth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another part with that would be the, and if you haven't heard from the person. Don't assume bad intent, right? Great point. You know, it could be that they're just really busy or they're having a, they're in a bad patch in their lives or something, and to be willing to follow up appropriately. So sometimes, you know, most people are willing to help, particularly if you've gone through the process you just described, but sometimes you just have to follow up. And I found sometimes that's where people will fall down is not following up. <laughs> following up. I wish I could find another study. I've only found one so far. It was from Gallup. And Gallup's usually, I think, really good, or mm -hmm. like a lot of their stuff, but... What do you think the average person that meets somebody at an event or, or dysfunction, what do you think the follow-up percent is? <laughs> 2%? So I, that's why I, I think it's actually less than five. They say it's, uh, uh, they have a 30%. That's all that they've been mm -hmm. able. But again, I, it's less. Yeah. Again, why? Why spend the time? Yeah. 
It's like filling up a bathtub and not putting in the stopper. Yeah. Why do it? Why spend the time and then not follow up? Yeah. In fact, you know, to get around that problem, that's one of the applications of Givitas. And so... The, well, what so, do you mean? Explain. So you go to a conference, yep. you meet a bunch of people, got a bit, bunch of business cards, and you have great intentions to do something with them, but you usually end up tossing them or putting them in a box, right? Yep. And you have a collection of all these business cards, yeah. right? With great intentions, nothing happened with it. So what we've started to do and what Larry has started to do with Givitas is to work with an association or an organization or a big company that's having an event where they have a lot of people coming from all over where there are these networking opportunities, but rather saying, instead of collecting all the business cards, we could do that if you want to, we're going to put all the attendees in one big Givitas group. Great idea. And people have got their profiles in there. You can add your profile now or later, and then we will have a small group of champions who have seeded it with requests that they're making even before the conference starts. And then you've got the whole thing because Givitas keeps a record. It's got the whole trail just like LinkedIn does as well. Mm. Everything is searchable. But there it's like, okay, you don't have to... And if you have the business card, you oh, know, you can still so find the person. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's the technology. Is that a new feature? I don't remember. The, um, is, that, is that a new feature of Givitas? Well, it's just an application of it. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. It's an application yeah. of it, yeah. I, gotta, I guess I got to re-familiarize yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Any questions before I let you go? I know you got a plane to catch. Yeah, I just uh, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I've learned a lot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You've humbled me. I appreciate you coming on. Anyone, you, everyone, I should say, not anyone, read this book. There is so much knowledge, and, and get familiar with Givitas. It is a great, I can, I can speak to it myself, as we just heard before. Great program. I think it's going to do a lot of good. How long has it been out? How long have you guys been around for now? Uh, we formed the company in 2016. Yeah. But how long until it rolled, until you guys have been out rolling and going into these organizations? Yeah, it was usually probably about the middle of 2017 into 2018 that we really started, because a lot of it had to go into product development. First. Correct, yeah. And one thing I've learned with technology, you're never done with product development. No, no, no. You know, you're always doing it. And I say Larry, and the, Larry and the team have done a great job of bringing it up to a level that yeah, I'm really proud of the product and it, it does what it's supposed to do and even more. Yeah. It really makes the whole process and when it was putting those two sides together, a process by which people can ask for what they need and then give people the ability to very easily help. Awesome. Well, I wish you the best of success. Thank you. Thank you again for coming on. My awesome. pleasure. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.